study on the Shroud of Turin. This is going to be part seven of our study, and uh, this time we're going to be going straight into our evaluation of the very first original art, uh, sorry, ordinary artistic hypothesis as an image forming mechanism, explaining how the Shroud of Turin's images and bloodstain, uh, bloodstains were put onto the shroud. And this is the infamous painting hypothesis uh, using traditional painting techniques, you know, paintbrush uh, and that sort of thing. This was ad advanced by uh, several people, but uh, in terms of actually having actual scientific evidence, uh, that only comes with a STIRP uh, associate or STIRP member, the skeptic Dr. Walter McCrone. And he's everyone who says, oh, there's paint on the shroud, everyone every shroud skeptic of different theories that says there's paint on the shroud are using the results that Dr. Walter McCrone found through his studies uh, on the shroud and which we'll be addressing throughout the next two podcasts on on the painting hypothesis and how that matches up in in regards to our method of criterion B you know how does it relate to the various minimal relevant features and can it account for all of them and also assessing a cumulative case consideration for our conclusion you know how does it stack up with regards to those inference criteria is it improbable uh is it equally possible or a probable hypothesis now just so you know there's with this there's a heck of a lot of data involved in this theory stirp spent probably a you know hours and hours and hours coming up with various tests obviously this this theory has been known about for centuries so they they came up with every conceivable uh way possible to test scientifically whether this theory is true or not and as we'll find out it was completely falsified nobody living today no shroud skeptic or anyone uh, believes this theory is true and we'll find out why but as i was saying there's so much data here so i'm probably going to have to break this up into two parts it's it's going to be well over two hours if if i you know maybe going on three hours if if i go over everything in one podcast and i'm still not covering everything there are some things i had to leave out but i think i'm getting the essence and all the main arguments in but just be aware it's probably gonna have to be a two-parter and or something so i'm gonna have to break it up we'll see it we'll see how it goes okay so uh, I explained to you, you know, how we're going to be assessing the painting hypothesis first by assessing the theory in light of each of the minimal relevant features that, that you know, things like the negativity, the three-dimensional aspect, the superficiality, you know, all, all those features in criterion A. And then finally, we're going to do that overall cumulative case conclusion and see how it measures up in terms of the inference criteria like plausibility, explanatory power, less ad hoc, and that sort of thing. Okay, so let's get to it. So the painting hypothesis is, as I've said, the oldest image-forming mechanism theory that's been around. It's been around for centuries since... You know, since the recorded history of the Shroud as well, since the 14th century, really. In 1389, uh, one of the first evidences, it's, it's historical in nature, that Shroud skeptics like to point to, and they think this is good evidence, but it's not. But they point to a memorandum written by Bishop Pierre d'Arcis in the year 1389. So this is about 40 years or so after the first undeniable recorded appearance of the Shroud in Leary, France in 1355 uh, to 1356. And he wrote a memorandum to the Pope proclaiming that the Shroud images were shown by his predecessor to be an artistic fake, a, a painting, uh, and the artist had confessed to his crime, so to speak, to his predecessor, and therefore he... Uh, the Pope should ban the Shroud. Now, 
in his memorandum to the Pope here, uh, or rather it was really an anti-Pope, it was Pope Clement from Avignon, um, basically Darsus defames the Leary Church, which was the church that had possession of the Shroud at that time. Oh, it's a cunningly devised fake. It, it's created solely for avarice or, or for money. They just want to get money. And, you know, this artist confessed to his crimes back then, and, and he wanted him, the Pope, to completely stop this. Basically, you know, as you can imagine, a lot of pilgrims were being attracted to the to this relic. This was the height of Catholic relic season and you know this this bishop was looking around and saying you know geez i'm not getting any money this isn't fair because uh the way leary the church at leary france uh was set up it was a local uh collegiate so it was under its own jurisdiction it was outside of the control of the bishop uh of that general area so he didn't have control over the money or anything like that so actually in point of fact, it was the bishop that was jealous and needed money, so he lied and made up stuff to the Pope to try and get his point across. And we'll find out more about the actual historical circumstances in a little bit. Just wanted to let you know, so there, there, there was this controversy, and what was the result? So basically the Pope wrote back to Bishop Darsus, told him to shut his mouth or else he would be excommunicated. He was you know, just stop these lies, basically, about the Shroud is what he told him. Um, however, one thing that helps the Shroud skeptic is he he told um, the Leary Church to only, they're, they're still allowed to exhibit and take money from the Shroud, but they have to call it a likeness or representation of Christ. They couldn't say this is actually the Shroud of Christ. This was the qualification. So shroud skeptics, you know, think they're so smart. They like to say, "Ah, oh, you see, it's a conspiracy. They they knew it was a fake, but they so they they're trying to limit what people can say. Uh, th- this is historical evidence that supports us, just like the carbon fourteen dating. And you know, skeptics really just mindlessly accept this kind of this kind of evidence, thinking it's good. But you know, they they would never accept this kind of thing if. It was on the the shoe was on the other foot, and I was presenting something like this. These claims are completely unsubstantiated. In the first place, Darsus is quoting his predecessor from an investigation that took place forty years prior. He doesn't provide any actual quotes or evidence, documentary evidence for his claims. This is just him making up BS. Oh, my predecessor said this. No proof, just lies. But skeptics will believe anything when it supports their case, I guess. So just understand about the memorandum controversy uh, for actual honest and open-minded people here. There are some points that I think that you skeptics should be aware of in regards to this. So uh, if the Darsus memorandum is to be used as evidence, and I I would admit, yeah, that this can be some historical evidence to consider. I mean, there is this memorandum that exists. But it should be assessed as all historical documents are. Think of think of this, skeptics. If I just quote the Gospels to you, they were made about 40 years later. I, I guess I've proven Jesus turned water into wine because it's in a document, right? I mean, come on, be consistent here. Yeah, so I would say that actual pe- people with uh, PhDs in history, actual historians, would say you need to understand the historical details as well as all the associated historical documents that come attached. In the first place, there's actually some controversy as to the precise meaning of the Latin that Darsus used. What, what did he say that the specific artist had actually confessed to this? Or was he saying just an artist, someone not associated with the Shroud, 
gave him confirmation, yeah, this this looks like it's just a painting or something like that. Uh, Ian Wilson, Shroud historian Ian Wilson, really lays out the case for this and, and everything surrounding the memorandum in Chapter 8 of his book on the Shroud. Lastly, uh, as I was saying, the Bishop of Troyes, or, or this bishop, was completely biased, and he had an obvious financial motivation to lie and make up stuff um, in order to get money. You know, this is, it's ironic because this is what he accuses the Leary Church of, even though they were rolling in the dough, and this was angering him because he didn't have control over this, what's, what's called a collegiate church. It was independent and outside of the bishop's control. Now, okay, Dale, this, this just sounds like you're being unfair to the Shroud Skeptic or unfair to Bishop Darsus. You're just, you know, turning it around and casting ad hominem attacks on this guy. Okay, well, what do we know historically about the circumstances Circumstances. Well, during the Christmas season in 1389, uh, Darsus's cathedral completely collapsed. The roof fell in, and this was due to one of the a failure in one of the arches that was supporting the upper tier. Um, plus, a very expensive window fell out. He needed money desperately. These are extremely expensive repairs that he needed to do to repair the damage. Therefore, that's motivation, people. That's how courts convict people. You know, that's one of the major factors. Bishop Darsus had a motivation to lie. The Leary Church doesn't have any provable... Well, no, okay. They, they would have a motivation to want to continue getting money and that sort of thing. But nonetheless, Darsus does have a provable, demonstrable motive to lie uh, because he was jealous. So, yeah, I think you need to be balanced, and I don't think this evidence is conclusive by any stretch it could go, it could go one way or the other so i will uh, and i'll provide a couple sources about the memorandum controversy and and the you know historical circumstances sort of surrounding that issue uh that's that's not really a part of what we're going to be we're supposed to be doing here in criterion b but i just wanted you guys to be aware that there is this historical data or evidence point that shroud skeptics like to point to and they think it proves something when it doesn't. Okay, so let's get into proper. Let, let's move away from the historical angering, uh, angle and get back into the actual science uh, as well as, you know, the focus of our main argument. So, Stirp was able to conclusively prove and scientific and or scientifically falsify the painting hypothesis. You know, regardless of the historical controversy surrounding the Darsus memorandum, we know today scientifically undeniable that the skeptic is just plain wrong here with regard to the traditional painting hypothesis. It was not, it, 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 whatever else it is, it's not a traditional painting. It's not an artistic picture, you know, by an artist. But just before we get too ahead of ourselves, let, let's see exactly what this evidence was that led Sturt to this unquestionable conclusion. You know, there's, as I said, there's no Shroud experts alive today, skeptic or otherwise, uh, who believes that the Shroud is a traditional painting. The last person who, who ever adhered to that was uh, the late Dr. Walter McCrone, and he, he's, uh, he died, I think, back in 2002. So after him, that's it. You know, no, nobody today believes this nonsense that skeptics like to point to. So just a bit of background. Who was Walter McCrone? Well, he was a famous microscopist back in the 1970s, late 1970s into the 1980s. Uh, and he first gained notoriety in the 1970s for his main uh, claim and public declarations that 
two famous artifacts were in fact artistic fakes or forgery. The first of these was the Vinland map. So that's the, you know, an alleged map that Vikings created uh, showing the new the new world, you know, their journey into Newfoundland and that sort of thing. McCrony analyzed it and said, oh, this is obviously fake. Um, so that skyrocketed him or boosted his reputation. And that's when Sturp invited him to take part in the, shra- the sh- study of the Shroud of Turin. Again, e- making him equally famous, he declared the Shroud of Turin was just a painting and an artistic fake, and he said it was conclusively proven. As I said, uh, many ignorant Shroud skeptics today will rely on his findings as quote-unquote proof that the Shroud is nothing more than that, just some artistic painting that some guy took and, and used uh, a paintbrush and, and drew this thing up. However, one interesting point about Macroni and his credibility as a scientist, as some in the first place, he, he is a noted expert. Sturp invited him to take part uh, for a reason, and he did find valid scientific discoveries about the Shroud, to which every Shroud, everyone needs to take account of those those findings, those can't be dismissed. However, it's his conclusions. He, you know, he's he's an incompetent scientist that sometimes he makes methodological, obvious amateur mistakes, as we'll find out. He makes boastful conclusions that the data doesn't warrant. And just, okay, am I just attacking this guy? Well, not only has his hypothesis about the shroud been disproven and falsified, the same goes with his Vinland map as well. A bunch of experts ha- have... Uh, and historians, I think it was at Harvard. I'll, I'll look that up, or I'll provide a, I'll provide you guys a source about that. But um, yeah, they've disproven his notions about the Vinland map. That's authentic too. That his findings that the paints didn't couldn't have been uh, date couldn't have been dated to the Vi- time of the Vikings is just nonsense. And you know, Macroni's zero for two now. His his reputation has been tarnished in academia. Um, based on these conclusions that he gives. So yeah, how, how does he, what did he do? with the, Basically, Sturp gave him various shroud samples from body image areas, non-body image areas, and uh, bloodstain areas. And using what's called PLM, or polarized light mi- microscopy, he made uh, you know, several scientific findings and observations, and uh, you know, he published these in his, not, pu- not it wasn't a peer-reviewed journal, but he, do- he did publish... Um, in an academic journal. It just happened to be his own, uh, so of course it got published. Um, but yeah, he, he published his findings, and I'm going to provide a link to his website as well as uh, an article for him uh, based on his findings on the Shroud. Um, there's stuff about the Vinland map there as well. But yeah, he, he basically concluded from his findings that the Shroud images were painted using an iron oxide pigment, a, a red iron oxide pigment in a gelatin binding medium. So that's a, um, a tempera collagen watercolor. That's the type of paint or pigment it was. Um, he also said the bloodstains were likewise painted the same, but they later on he had to modify again. McCrony came up with about four theories. He, he was wrong three times, and finally he, he said, okay, well, there's also red vermilion pigment present in the bloodstains, so uh, the bloodstains must have been touched up after being painted in iron, red iron oxide pigment. They were also touched up with red vermilion or uh, Venetian rouge is, is you know, the the name of the pigment. However, all other scientists involved in Sturp, including skeptical non-Christian ones, ultimately disagreed with Macroni, 
and ruled out this traditional painting hypothesis beyond all reasonable doubt as an image forming mechanism. Uh, so let's find out why. Why, you know, how does uh, how does it stack up here? So. The first minimal relevant feature is the photographic negativity and the high resolution. How does the painting hypothesis stack up to this? Well, with regard to the photographic negativity or quasi-negativity, you know, Walter McCrone admits that this is a feature, but he says it's only a quasi-negative image. Fine. Remember I said I'm not, not, we'll assume whatever the best case is for the shroud skeptic. So in this case, let's, it's a quasi-negative image. Great. Happy to do that for you, Macroni. But um, basically, Macroni himself admits my point. I'm quoting the Shroud skeptic here. Walter Macroni admits that the photographic negativity may be quasi, but that's not that can't be proven. We can't pr rule out the fact that the hair and beard of the Shroud man are light brown or blonde in color versus actually being white. So he he admits that qualification. This is coming from the Shroud skeptic himself. Like he admits that the data can't go can't prove that the Shroud Man's hair and beard are white. However, with regard to even the quasi-negative aspect, I would say it's questionable. It's, it's possible, but it is questionable as to whether some medieval artist could purposely, and or as Macroni said, accidentally, by sheer chance, uh, paint images using traditional paint techniques to create a quasi-negative image. You know, it, it has to be noted that prior to the 14th century, prior to the Shroud, there are absolutely none, no other artistically created or painted images that are negative images in the same way the Shroud was. So the Shroud was completely unprecedented in this regard. However, to be fair, it, it has to be admitted that there, there have been some subsequent images bearing partial negative images. All of those are historically known to have been copied from the Shroud images or using the Shroud images as uh, direct inspiration. But still, it, it, it shows it's plausible that a medieval, that artists could have, using traditional painting techniques, could have created, you know, semi-photo-negative images or partially semi-photo-negative images. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to assign this a questionable a questionable status uh, for fulfillment of this feature. You know, if you want to be generous, uh, you know, maybe you could give it to the skeptic, but still, I, I think there's an element of questionability, especially as we get into other aspects in conjunction with this. But yeah, so here, here's a quote from Macroni in his book, Judgment Day for the Shroud of Turin. He says, quote unquote, I feel the negative character of the image is a coincidence revolting re resulting from the artist's conception of his commission. I feel it is also a coincidence that the negative image yields a three-dimensional figure. Oh, I thought shroud skeptics like Alan like to deny this, but here Macrony, an expert and skeptic, admits that there's also this 3D feature as well. He goes on, Macrony goes on to say, this is a natural, meaning accidental, a consequence of the artist's effort to produce a body image based on contact points. So, yeah, in, in the first place, I think it has to be admitted that the ultimate shroud skeptic and a qualified scientist, who I'm assuming, you know, layman shroud skeptics don't want to deny his results, right? He admits both the negativity and the 3D aspects of the shroud's body images here are actual features. So it's it's undeniable, my friends. It's you're ignorant if you deny these these features. But yeah, what about this notion? Macrone just says it was pure coincidence. It just, it you know, these features just happened to come about. You know, pro shroud advocates question this. Can can you honestly imagine such a talented artist 
who could have painted the image and would have obtained by an extraordinary chance the wonderfully highly realistic image, that's the high, re- high resolution, a negative photogra- photograph plus with three-dimensional images without having in mind even the possibility to imagine such an effect. How could an artist by sheer happenstance stumble upon creating both negative and three-dimensional images using a traditional painting techniques technique when all others uh, have failed to do so, including modern forensic artists, as we'll soon learn. Yeah, skeptics, I, I think you're crazy. But, okay, um, what about the high-resolution and image diffuseness aspect of this feature? Well, here, the Shroud skeptic's absolutely right. I mean, the highly resolved nature of the Shroud images is, isn't an issue. I mean, we have tons of paintings that are highly resolved. You can see details between, you know, uh, the Renaissance painters are wonderful. I mean, the this isn't an issue for the shroud skeptic or the painting hypothesis. Painters can create highly resolved images. You know, just take a walk through your museum and you'll see that. The image diffuseness, on the other hand, is a little bit more iffy. Um, you know, as I said, when you get close up to the image, you can't really see it with, with the naked eye. Uh, it doesn't have any definable borders. So, you know, that kind of makes it hard to... How could a painter paint such an image if he can't see what he's painting? However, th- this objection, this uh, feature can be easily countered, and I, I think Macroni, I agree with him. He-, he basically postulates that, yeah, but that's today. I mean, originally the shroud images were darker and were easier to see at close aim, close um, close range, but they faded today. So you know, he postulates that originally they were at least a shade or two darker red than they are seen today. As to whether that could be said to be historically accurate, um, you know, we know that the shroud images, we have historical proof that the shroud images were faded um, as of at least the 1500s. And if you agree with my link to, you know, in parts two, where I link it to the Byzantine image of God incarnate, you know, those uncircumscribed images or the image of Edessa, if, if my arguments there obtained, then we know prior to the 1300s, it was already f- faded. But yeah, that, you know, none of that really matters. Macrone could just say, well, okay, a sixth century artist painted it. And whenever the images were painted, first century, second century, whatever you want to say, they were originally a shade or two darker. And we will give it to the shroud skeptic. I, I will give them a green check mark on the, the high resolution and the image diffuseness. I think there are postulations where the shroud skeptic could preserve this theory. With the negativity, it's questionable at best. So, what about the uniformity then? Well, uh, in the first place, we have to admit the shroud skeptic can immediately account for the uniform density and the substance uf- uniformity features of the shroud. Painters can create images, both front and dark, that are and uh, dorsal, which have the same maximal optical densities, more or less. And they also, you know, there are no various substances. It's all paint. It, you know, the hair is painted, the skin is painted. So the painting hypothesis accounts for these, not a problem, right? Like there, there are no substances, differing substances to begin with. It, it's all just one substance and the density can be accounted for. However, here's where the problem comes in for you shroud skeptics. The intensity uniformity, the col- remember the color intensity of each individual fabril is exactly the same. No individual fabril is darker than the other. And that's very improbable. Uh, I would even say impossible 
uh, to imagine that any artist in any period of history using simple traditional painting techniques with their hand-eye brain coordination in, in order to paint with a uniform color intensities on each and every single separate fabril individually. You know, all artistic paintings using these traditional techniques have been shown to have varying color intensities. No exceptions. The, the shroud would be the only one. Impossible, skeptics. Come on, get with it. But yeah, you know, artists, artists, when you paint, they'll apply more pigment to one area over another. Maybe they're pressing a little harder or they put too much paint on, on the paintbrush at one time. It's just impossible. It's physically impossible for an artist using any traditional painting technique to create uniform intensities of image color over the entirety of, of both images. It's just not possible. Sorry, skeptics. Also, just as a note, uh, this isn't an MRF, but remember the cylindrical uniformity. It's important to note that the Shroud Skeptics painting hypothesis can't, it's impossible for them to account for this feature as well. If the cylindrical uniformity were ever to be proven, this alone would rule out the painting hypothesis there as well. Okay, so next we have the three-dimensional info, and we've already sort of gotten into that a little bit as well. Macroni, as I said, he admits that the body images do portray three-dimensional or tri-dimensional data. You know, if, if shroud skeptics like Alan want to deny the three-dimensional data altogether, I'm sorry, you're just ignorant. Um, I, I suspect that Alan has some kind of qualification when he denies that, so I'll, I'll see what he says in his detailed critique. But, but yeah, Macrone agrees there are these three-dimensional info on the shroud, but it's a sheer coincidence, as we said. You know, it's an accidental byproduct of the, uh, what he says, quote-unquote, the, the artist's effort to produce a body image based on contact points. You know, the, the, darkness, the darkness of most parts of the body images representing the distance of the cloth from the body at each of these, these uh, various contact points. So, Sturp scientists knew, knew about this, and they actually took efforts to scientifically test using various artistic experts you know, certified forensic artists, modern forensic artists, light years ahead of these, um, any medieval artist or something like that, they were commissioned and actually coached by STIRP scientists. Um, this, this was done by Dr. Jackson, Jumper, and Erkeline, Bill Erkeline, and they were coached on how to try and actually duplicate the Shroud's 3D body images, all of whom had the benefit of being able to cheat. They could double-check and correct their work, whereas the medieval artists couldn't be able to correct or double-check their work with various invisible features and that sort of thing. Uh, they didn't have VP8 image analyzers to check, uh, well, have I got the nose three-dimensionally perfect and stuff like that. Plus, they were even given various anchor points to help them you know, in, in relation to certain hard aspects in this regard. So it was kind of like, okay, this will help you create a 3D image, and they gave them some anchor points. They still failed. None of their attempts using the modern scientific equipment and the most up-to-date scientific know-how, none of them were successful in duplicating the Shroud's 3D features. As the STIRP scientist said, at best, only fair correlations could be achieved by these modern artists using modern methods. And after a series of these extensive scientific experiments, the STIRP scientists were forced to conclude that, quote-unquote, there are extreme technical as well as historical difficulties with the idea that an artist in medieval times or at any other earlier provenance could encode the three-dimensional body information as seen on the shroud into an image artistically crafted in the reverse 
uh, or photonegativity, photonegative. You know, Jackson Jumper and Erkline went on to suggest that the reason for this failure to duplicate the shroud's three-dimensionality was due to a combination of limited visual discernment of the shading, you know, at a low contrast, and the complete lack of consistent motor, so that's referring to that hand-eye-brain coordination, uh, in applying the correct shading values. Uh, thus, you know, really to think that some medieval artists created the shroud's quasi-negative and three-dimensional aspects by pure coincidence, uh, based on contact points or something like that, as, you know, as Macrony likes to postulate, you're utterly absurd, skeptic. I mean, come on, grow up and... and try to think critically about things a little bit more. Okay, so next we have the fourth minimal relevant feature. This refers to, you know, things like the vertical vertical mapping of the shroud, the, you know, it's a full-length continuous image and that sort of thing. So how does the painting hypothesis stack up here? Well, in the first place, the full-length continuous images and the no body sides or tops of the heads being encoded, as well as the alleged non-contact zones, all three of these skeptics you win. A painting, a painter could account for these aspects or these these features. I mean, we see full-length body images all the time in paintings. Not a problem. Non-contact zones, well, there, there are no such things, right? Because when it's painted, the paintbrush makes contact and paints the images. There, there isn't a, a body with a naturally draped cloth over it where, where it wouldn't be touching the, touching the, you know, there wouldn't be these non-contact zones is what I'm trying to say. So good for you, skeptics, you win. The no body sides or tops of the image or tops of the head. Uh, you Sure, an artist could do this and, and we'll give it, you know, we're not going to, I'm not going to hold this against the shroud skeptic. I'm going to be generous, but I think you'll have to admit it's a little bit weird. Why, why would a painter not encode these images? Um, it's almost like he's trying to anticipate an impossible knowledge that he wants it to show it's vertically mapped and that, you know, the sides weren't mapped or, or encoded as body images. But yeah, this, this is where the shroud skeptic utterly fails. And this is the vertical alignment or those wrapping distortions um, of the shroud suggesting a, a vertically collimated encoding process, you know, rectilinear or curvilinear, you know, in exactly the same way that the notion of some medieval artist encoding the shroud's three-dimensional information is utterly inconceivable, it's just as incomprehensible to imagine some medieval artist coming up with the concept of painting, uh, again, with no historical precedence uh, and or even subsequent later copies. There, there are actually no copies of these things either with the 3D or the vertically mapped. You know, an image that would suggest a vertical projection of the body image as it laid in a supine position covered by the cloth. You know, th this notion is just ridiculous on a conceptual level. But, you know, once again, scientific experiments were actually conducted by Sturb scientists to prove this was the case. And they, they proved through their experiments it was virtually impossible for any artist, whether medieval or modern, again, because of that hand-eye-brain motor coordination, to they wouldn't be able to encode the wrapping distortions in such a way as to, you know, in the precise configurations in order to account for this feature, this vertical alignment or vertically mapped wrapping distortion feature. Even the slightest misstep would result in a complete failure to encode this body image aspect, but yet this shroud artist was flawless, incredible. I, I, I'm sorry, skeptics, you're reaching. I mean, just think about it. The, the lack of sufficient motor control of every single human being 
that ever existed automatically rules out some unaided medieval artist coming up with this feature. One thing Jackson did, uh, Jackson and uh, Erkline and um, Jumper thought of was, what about using a contact modeling, you know, to demonstrate the where the wrapping distortions should be placed in the image? Could this be used to help some medieval artist? But doing that, it was scientifically document demonstrated that the resultant distortions from using a contact modeling would actually be far greater than those observed on the shroud images where the distortions are correlated with a vertical projection of the image. So, yeah, the the notion of a contact modeling doesn't help your case. It hurts you. It makes it worse. Um, so, yeah, uh, again, another chalk up another failure for you shroud skeptics that, that like the painting hypothesis there. Um, what about superficiality, the fifth minimal relevant feature? Well, with... The images being body images being superficial, and there's no um, cementation or cementation of the fibers or, or the threads at all. All painting theories require that a viscous or, or a low viscous painting medium was used, and as such, any and all painting mediums or pigments, uh, you know, or organic stains or dyes, anything in this liquid state would necessarily leave behind evidence of cementation, you know, of the fibers or capillary flow and that sort of thing. Paint would soak down deep past the top two or three. Remember, the thread superficiality would definitely go past the top two or three um, fibers of the thread. You know, it wouldn't be just on the primary cell wall at the fiber level. And even at the fabric level, it wouldn't be superficial. It would sink down, soak down deep into the into the linen cloth, just as your drink when spilt on a piece of clothing or your rug. Sorry, skeptics, you fail here. It's, it's just ridiculous to think that a painting medium of any type could account for the superficial nature of the images. Not so fast though, Dale. Macroni knew about the superficial um, superficiality of the Shroud's images. Oh, first of all, interesting, because uh, I know Shroud skeptics like Alan dismiss this feature as garbage, but yet the ultimate Shroud skeptic and an actual scientist that you like, Macroni admits this is true. Interesting. Experts versus ignorance, uh, I guess, right? Um, but anyways, the, he provided several reasons to try and account for this. Why, why didn't the images, if they were painted, why didn't they penetrate to the backside of the cloth? You know, even he admitted that at least some level of penetration would normally be expected from a tempera paint, uh, which, which is what he claimed was proven to be used on the shroud. So here are various justifications that he used. So in the first place, linen is not normally easily wetted by water. You know, it requires many seconds or even minutes for a single drop to soak completely into the cloth surface. Next, as this as the liquid does migrate through the cloth, pigment particles would have been expected to quote unquote settle out, uh, either on or be trapped in the surface markings of the fibers. Next, the coating of the medium on the fibers is extremely thin and nearly colorless. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that later, but yeah, he has a ridiculous ad hoc notion about the nature of the paint. But yeah, um, so anyways, a tempera paint would also be expected to envelop the topmost fibrils and perhaps penetrate a number of additional fibers into the thread. Yeah, but the shroud doesn't, Macroni, so right there you fail, according to your own admission. But um, still, he, he says, but it wouldn't be expected to soak all the way through to the opposite side of the cloth. Yeah, it doesn't matter, man. You, that's, you're trying to account, trying desperately, and 
uh, to account for the fabric level, but you fail on the thread level. If it goes past the top two to two to three fibrils, you fail. You haven't replicated the shroud. And even Macroni here is admitting this, that hit the painting theory wouldn't be able to account for the thread level superficiality fab or fiber level superficiality and he's even iffy on the fabric level as well. But yeah, the chemisorption properties of the cellulose making up the linen fibers themselves, he thinks, could have prevented the collagen tempera medium from penetrating very far from the points of application on the surface. Again, these are all fabric level superficiality considerations. He has no knowledge of, and, and this isn't totally Macron. Well, no, it is his fault because he published his book well after Sturp's findings. But yeah, so... What what is it? What do we say in response to these five defenses of how he thinks it's possible the shroud images could be superficial even if, even if they're painted? Well, contrary to Macroni's unconfirmed and unsubstantiated claims, virtually all art historians and scientists, based on the best known scientific research, have concluded that any and all painting techniques using historically known pigments and/or paint mediums. Up until the year 1355 or 1356, you know, the Shroud's first universally acknowledged uh, appearance in Europe, would all naturally soak down into the cloth and leave behind obvious evidence of cementation or capillary action and flow. And this problem only becomes exacerbated if we postulate an earlier historical provenance for the Shroud. If the Shroud was painted in the 6th century, this problem would get even worse for you Shroud skeptics. Also, even if we hypothetically concede that it's possible to paint superficial images at the fabric level, as, you know, Macroni's justifications seem only to reflect this sort of consideration, as I said, that says nothing about the Shroud's superficiality at the thread or fiber levels. These uh, fibrils are too fine to be distinguished with the human eye alone. Each fibril is individually colored, and this would require an an alleged painter to have access to a microscope centuries before it was even invented. But it gets even worse for you shroud skeptics because such an artist would need to use a brush with a single br bristle to accomplish the image superficiality at, bo at all three levels. You know, to do otherwise would mean that the paint medium would be expected to soak down past the first two to three fibrils and certainly beyond the primary cell walls of each fibril. So, you know, envisioning this kind of absurd scenario where an artist is using a single bristle to dipping it in paint and trying to paint out an image, even if we grant the Shroud skeptic this, the painting hypothesis this, this would still not duplicate the Shroud's superficiality because even a single sable or horsehair, which is the finest material available in the medieval period, even that is still thicker than an individual fiber or fibril itself, and thus can't account for the shroud's superficiality. Now, what about uh, image non-saturation? Now, here's what I was talking about. I, I alluded to before. Macroni has a very ad hoc and, quite frankly, ridiculous, historically ridiculous suggestion, but he, he proposed that maybe this painter used, exclusively used a very thin coating of paint you know, virtually it's almost water instead of paint because it's a very dilute concentration of a gelatin pigment medium, about 0.01% solution. And Macroni said, well, under these this assumption, maybe it's possible to account for the shroud's non-saturation aspect. 
You know, they're not as fully dark as they could be. But here the question of why any self-respecting medieval artist would go to the trouble of using such a diluted form of painting medium in the first place makes this theory very implausible. I mean, there's, there's no other precedence for this. No other artists in history have ever used such a diluted mixture. So, you know, what, why would a medieval artist use a 0.01% solution? I don't buy it. That's improbable to me. Finally, uh, again, not this is not an MRF, but remember that double superficiality. Once again, the painting hypothesis, if this feature were true, would utterly fail in this regards. It's inconceivable why an artist would, would paint superficial images on the front doubly, but leave the backside not doubly, doubly superficial. It's just too weird, you know, skeptics. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. So, yeah, in conclusion on this feature, if the shroud was ever to be a painting, it, it would, all, it would uh, stand completely alone with respect to image superficiality, and it would be completely unique in the entire history of artistic paintings. You know, if you're desperate enough to try and believe this, okay, um, have at it. But for us rational people, it's just too much to take, I'm afraid, skeptics. So, yeah, um, what about the next minimal relevant feature, those anatomical and bloodstained features? So... Yeah, as I said, with the anatomical aspects, it's utterly impossible, I think, that a painter, medieval painter, could paint invisible serum retraction rings accurately around the bloodstains or these halos, you know, that can only be seen under ultraviolet illumination and weren't known about in the medieval period. It, this is just a clincher. I'm sorry, it's not a paint... These bloodstains and serum retraction rings are not painted images. I don't know how to be more emphatic in this. You, it's just, yeah, it's ridiculous to think that that is possible. The painting thing could account for the rigor mortis or the body rigidity, uh, as well as there being no decomposition liquids or, or putrefaction signs evident on the shroud. Of course, that makes sense. It was painted. There was never a a body in there to begin with. However, there is another issue that pertains to the general inconsistency of being able to artistically weave with precision the colored image fibers into, um, you know, into the complex ultrafine relationship observed on the shroud between the image fibers, the bloodstains, serum retraction rings, and the scourge wounds over the entire extent of both the frontal and dorsal images. So that's sort of getting into it's it's impossible that some painter could terminate his blood images precisely at the proper locations where the body images stop, right? Remember there's no body images under under the blood stains and there's no evidence of overlap in one of our additional features. Yeah, I think any painter, even if you're using blood or whatever the substances you're painting, there there would be evidence of smearing or some smearing or damage. Uh, and or overlap that would be evident in any and all traditional painting mechanisms. Also, I, I think that many of these wounds are realistic and anatomically accurate. This is un very unlikely for a medieval artist to paint images contrary to the no medical knowledge and expertise of his day. I mean, we know how the medical doctors and artists portrayed wounds in the medieval period and before, and how inaccurate and ignorant these these people were. I mean, we have, for example, the 12th century work of Theophilus de Diversis uh, Erebus. Uh, we also have uh, handbooks from the 14th and 15th century, the work of Sinio de Andre 
Sanini, you know, they reveal step-by-step procedures for how artists of those periods should depict various wounds. You know, he has entire chapters of specific instructions on how to paint a dead man, how to paint wounds, and these are the world's experts at this time. And they are terrible. They they screw up. They mess up everything. Um, but yet, you shroud skeptics think this, you know, this uh, genius of an artist somehow went against all the knowledge of his time and painted these features relatively flawlessly. Now, obviously, um, just as a note, okay, but yeah, but you're missing that counter feature. Remember, the counter features would help. There are some medical or anatomical inaccuracies on the shroud as well. Um, okay, fair enough. I'll, I'll give that to you, shroud skeptics. I think it's a little weird as to how this medieval artist is so brilliant and at the same time so incompetent to encode these inaccuracies, but yep, I'll give that to you. That that makes sense, and that counter feature supports the painting hypothesis. But yeah, here's a, a quote from an actual art historian, Isabel Pixack, and I'll provide some sources by her as well. Uh, so she says, the initial drawing such, slash painting would have had to include an anatomical and medical knowledge which was barely touched upon even in the high renaissance and a profound biblical scholarship regarding early Christian writings, first century Jewish burial rites, Roman crucifixion methods in the first century Judea, and a premonition about the results of recent archaeological excavations around Jerusalem. The first ever portrait painting in Western culture which is that of Enrico Scrovengini, and uh, uh, he was in Padua at the uh, Arnia Chapelle. So this was in around 1304, and in around the same time as Shroud. The Shroud images was an astronomical distance in quality from the Shroud, from a medical and anatomical perspective. Even though it's not the work of an unknown artist, but that of the great master Giotto. So the development of a portrait painting in its own right had to wait until the coming of artists of the High Renaissance, but even then, a true realism, as shown on the Shroud, was never achieved uh, by painters until the French Academy in around the last half of the 17th century to the second half of the 19th century. This is an art historian and a world's expert, Isabel Pixack, and she says it was impossible no, no painter at that time knew, even the world's experts, you know, knew how to paint these anatomical accuracies or bloodstains so accurately. But yet, the Shroud skeptic wants to say some genius was able to figure it out. Okay, good luck with that. So yeah, as I said, as to the counter features, yep, I'll give it to you. There are, the, there are some anatomical inaccuracies which are true. Um, and this would seem to lend credence to a painting hypothesis. A painting technique could account for inaccuracies uh, on the shroud for sure. Now what about the blood stains though? So the first thing we can say here is that whatever the blood stains are composed of, they have been demonstrated to have different mineral composition to the paints and pigments claimed by Walter McCrone. As well, they're completely different to all medieval pigments that were known from, that are historically known about from the medieval period ever before. The bloodstains also were shown to have an organic matrix to them. But again, we'll, we'll get into discussion of the composition of the bloodstains in, in the Part 8 podcast. Um, another feature, as I said, there's no body images under the bloodstains. This suggests that the blood was deposited on the cloth first, 
Uh, I wouldn't be dogmatic about that, though. It seems the most obvious conclusion that all the scientists and experts mostly go for and mostly think is true. But yeah, how, how this artist could draw such realistic blood flows um, that fool all foren modern forensic and anatomical experts. You know, I'm sorry, that, that's just beyond me. Um, especially if, if it's true that the blood was deposited onto the shroud first, well, he wouldn't have even had body images to act as reference to help guide him as to the proper position of the blood flows, you know, where they should be placed, uh, the proper size and shape of the of these flows. Yeah, the, these are problematic if, if you give me that the bloodstains were painted first, but also vice versa. If, if the body images were painted first and he just he stops painting the body images precisely in the correct locations for the bloodstains to be inserted later, that's just as problematic as well. Also, remember the serum retraction rings, and that's impossible, I would say, for any human artist. Middle Ages, um, to have had the high hand-eye-brain motor control necessary to consistently terminate these images where the body images are. Furthermore, we also know that the bloodstains were transferred to the cloth in a liquid state, yet there's no evidence of any smearing, uh, damage or otherwise alteration on the blood marks as would be expected if you're using a paintbrush you know there would be at least some overlap or some smearing and damage you know at, at the very least at the microscopic level we would be able to discover this we we discover it in other paintings so yeah this would have been difficult if not impossible for some someone to paint uh, without causing this kind of smearing or damage or something at a microscopic level now there is one possible solution that may be able to help account for some of the unlikely aspects, uh, like the serum retraction rings. And this is if, if um, an artist used a, some kind of a combination with a direct contact mechanism of a body, you know, may, maybe this could account for some of the anatomical accuracies as well as the inaccuracies because the, the artist filled in the details or gaps. But this is sort of going outside of the traditional painting hypothesis. It, it, there, are, there are theories that involve a combination of painting and human corpse. But yeah, we'll, we'll save that for later, but just be aware there are issues with that. Like, how, how would you align, you know, say you put it over a corpse to get the blood stains? Still, you paint and then you paint the body images around it. How do you, how do you terminate the images? It's still impossible to not have some overlap or some kind of damage or smearing. So even postulating the use of a combination theory with a real body that still doesn't help you account for all the features of the shroud's bloodstains. So, yeah, uh, it doesn't work, even even that, but that's not a part of the painting hypothesis. This is a traditional painting hypothesis by Walter McCrony and others who just say everything was painted. So that's what we're addressing here. We'll address, you know, direct contact or combinations in other podcasts. So, yeah, another thing to note here is that according to actual experts, um, there are no known historical precedents for such details of bloodstains from any artistic work from the medieval period. You know, it seems almost trite at this point to say that the totality of the bloodstains and scourge wounds were thus not simply painted haphazardly onto the cloth with wet blood or paint, but instead they were meticulously crafted. Uh, that's a direct quote from some of these art experts like Isabel Pixack. Also, we know that the blood is not composed of paints or pigments, as we'll soon see in the edition in part eight of our podcast in our series. So yeah, that that falsifies Macrone's theory right there, if that's true. However, there, we also have an interesting. I'm going to provide a source for you guys, but there's been a series of 
various scientific experiments uh, to test scientifically whether the bloodstains could have been produced, either painting with real blood. But yeah, let, let's say the Shroud skeptics said, well, what about painting with actual blood? This could solve the serum retraction rings issue and, uh, you know, a, whole, a host of others, like, you know, some of the anatomical accuracies could have been accounted for with the blood stains. So physicist Dr. Arthur Lind and shroud expert Mark Antianici have actually written a scholarly article uh, detailing some of some scientific tests that they've uh, conducted to test scientifically whether this option, if an artist could paint with actual blood, either human or animal, would, would suffice to, would it work? And in their initial experiments, Dr. Uh, Lin recognized immediately that there is an obvious problem with this solution, the blood's clotting process. Um, again, that's where the watery serum is released from a shrinking blood clot, uh, leaving those serum retraction rings. But yeah, the, the problem, it, it causes severe difficulties in any artist's ability to paint uh, blood images you know, with distinct borders, resembling realistic blood flows and all of that. And... It's because that the watery serum being squeezed out from the blood clots as they retract actually consequently cause diffusion of the images through the capillary forces, you know, pulling the, the blood along the threads, and they, they often go far away from the tip of the brush and far beyond the boundary of the intended lines of the blood stain, blood images. So you get a blob instead of definable blood stain images like we see on the shroud. So this, this issue of clotting or coagulation of the blood is a major problem that uh, needs to be addressed. One way they, they tried to address this by, you know, using older blood and they put the brush uh, deliberately inserted into the center of the clot to exclude the watery serum to see what would happen. Basically, this didn't help out. It just resulted in the blood on the brush being washed off uh, and replaced by the watery serum as it was removed. So. If, if any artist did paint the blood stains on the shroud using actual blood, you know, it became painfully obvious that it, it's scientifically proven that this rapid clotting process is a serious problem that needs to be mitigated against or, or prevented from happening before any artist could use blood to paint these images. Now, there are at least a couple different, I, I, I would actually add a third one, but there's a historically plausible methods that an enterprising medieval artist or quasi-scientist could have employed to prevent the clotting of the blood and, and therefore allow him to, to use blood to paint these images. So these methods are, number one, stirring the fresh blood vig vigorously will prevent it from clotting or coagulating for a bit. Or two, you, you could mix in a small amount of lemon juice containing citric acid to the fresh blood. And this would, you know, these are simple methods a medieval artist could do without any deliberate intent even to, you know, so long as they were kept cool to prevent coagulation of the blood and allow them to paint with the blood up to about a few days afterwards before it would, be, would become a problem. However, there is a third option suggested by Shroud skeptic Colin Barry. And I thought this was an interesting suggestion, but he, he proposes um, painting the bloodstained images using the blood from inside leeches. Uh, you know, this will prevent the coagulation of the blood when for, for lengthy periods of time. It, it could even last up to months after the initial consumption of the blood by these leeches, and then they can be extracted for painting uh, purposes. So I think that's a rather ingenious idea and deserves method. Like, the, there are many historically plausible ways to prevent the blood from coagulating, thereby eliminating this problem. So... 
Yeah, I think that has to be admitted. That these are options that are plausible. So what happened when they did this, when they used anticoagulant on the blood? Basically, they found that the resultant images did have definable borders, but they didn't have noticeably darker perimeters like the shroud. This was when they specifically used a small brush. Remember, remember superficiality. It has to be a very small brush, not a larger brush. And even, even then, even if you use a single bristle, it's still too big to account for the image superficiality. But uh, with the blood stains, the blood isn't superficial, so that isn't even an issue anyways. But yeah, so this is what they found. When they used a small brush, the blood stains did have definable borders, so it could have been real, realistic if he somehow had the knowledge of how to do paint these realistic blood stains. Um, but they had noticeably, they didn't have noticeably darker perimeters, and the shroud's bloodstains have a milder center with a dark peri darker perimeter around them. So that's an inconsistency there. So to correct for this, they used a larger brush to see what would happen. And with that, basically, uh, no, they were able to get darker perimeters with lighter centers, but there was no definable borders. It, it, it spread out and created large blobs of blood that weren't in precise size, shape, and position of a um, of an actual blood clot as it forms and congeals on human skin, thereby eliminating that. All in all, I, I don't think these types of artistic painting hypotheses can account for the anatomical accuracies or for the blood stains in their various aspects. Uh, just to quote one medical expert, Professor doc, uh, Dr. Pierre Barbet, uh, he says, "Well, the blood the blood stains." as well as the invisible serum retraction rings and scourge mark pictures, were clearly not drawn by the hand of man. They could be nothing but the counter-drawing made by blood, which had been previously congealed on a human body. No artist, not a single one, would have been able to imagine for himself the minute details of those pictures, each one of which portrayed the detail of which we now know about but which in the 14th century was completely unknown. But the fact is that not one of us, even with modern medical knowledge and scientific equipment, would be able to produce such pictures without repeatedly falling into some kind of obvious blunder. So, yeah, you know, as to the three, I concur with the actual experts. It's not, it's not a painted image, I'm sorry to say. Um, but what about those, remember those three bloodstain counter features? There's number one, the propaint observations. Okay, we're going to delay that for part eight. It's coming. Those need to be addressed. What about the enduring redness? Yeah, well, painting hypothesis could account for enduring redness. If you use red paint, it, it wouldn't turn brown or black like blood would. So it can account for that feature fine. And also those that recent those recent scientific experiments, that you remember the blood pattern analysis showing that some of the flows are unrealistic? Well, if that's if that was I don't think that's proven true on a balance of probabilities, but if it were, yeah, that would be consistent with a painting hypothesis. You know, I, I would expect a medieval artist to to goof and make unrealistic blood flow, so that makes sense. Okay, finally, we're into the final minimal relevant feature. These are the additional features, and I'm not going to go over every single one, but there are certain ones that apply here. So the first one is the fact that there are, remember, the two-dimensional directionlessness, or the, or the fact that there are no evident detectable brush strokes on the shroud. Well, using traditional paints and pigment uh, pigments, uh, and, uh, you know, traditional techniques like a paintbrush, Normally, this does leave behind at least a millimeter thick or more paint layer 
in which two-dimensional directionality of the brushstrokes can be observed. You know, did he paint side to side, up and down, uh, diagonally? This is typically what we find. So Walter Macroni, the, the skeptic, he, he admits this is the case with all other medieval paintings. Uh, but he, he postulates very ad hoc solution to this. And he, he basically says, yeah, but the paint that they used was essentially pure water. Remember, perhaps 0.01% gelatin or collagen uh, tempera, as well as a 0.01% solution of iron oxide pigment to paint these images. Now, he actually did scientifically substantiate the possibility, at least, of creating shroud images with such a dilute pigment mixture. And this, he, he does deserve credit here. He, he had an artist friend of his uh, named Walter Sanford actually paint uh, drops of the 0.01% solution on other linen cloths. And consequently, Macroni was able to scientifically demonstrate that as little as two to three micrograms of iron oxide paint is actually able to give a, a visible discoloration and that uh, you know the variations in the iron oxide concentrations do give an appropriate shading similar to the shrouds. In other words, Macrone had um, recreated reasonably similar visible images. Um, so yeah, he recreated these shroud images without necessitating the existence of there being detectable brushstrokes on the shroud. But again, it's highly questionable, very ad hoc. You know, it, it seems historically implausible that a medieval artist would use such a dilute mixture to create his images. Um, there's no reason why he would do this. It just strains credulity. And, you know, like I said, there's no other examples of such a dilute solution ever being used on other paintings in that period. So I'm going to be generous to the Shroud skeptic here. I'm going, to, I'm going to assign this a questionable status on this additional feature. Next feature is additional feature number four. The fact that there are no overlaps or no layering, evidence of layering one layer of paint over another. Basically, I'm quoting the Art Institute of Chicago here, and they say this. So, paintings typically have layered structures contain, consisting of a support, preparation, one or more paint layers, and in many instances, a coat of varnish. The support may be a fabric stretched around a wooden framework called a stretcher or strainer or may consist of panels made of wood or some other material, you know, blah, blah, blah. Next, the artist may make an initial sketch or underdrawing on the ground, or in some cases, transfer the design from the well-developed preparatory drawings, you know, to use as a guide in his thing. The paint layer or layers are composed of pigments suspended in a binding medium, such as drying oil, egg tempera, plant gum, animal glue, etc. And then a final coating with a varnish layer traditionally done with the old master um, and 19th century paintings, is frequently eliminated in modern and contemporary works. So yeah, the lack of detectable layers on the shroud images makes them rather atypical of other paintings from the medieval period. However, you know, given Macroni's postulated very diluted pigment solution, it may be possible that uh, this feature what could be accounted for. It's a bit weird. Um, I, I think I do think it actually fails with regards to no overlap over the invisible serum retraction rings and, and or blood stains in general for the body images. Okay, I'll, I'll give that a questionable status. I'll help out the skeptic uh, in that front. Next up, um, there's also no uh, detectable dry powder. This is additional feature number five. Dry powder, why, why is this relevant to a painting hypothesis? They don't postulate dry powder. Well, I just bring this up here because Walter Macrone, as I said, you know, he 
he's kind of a bumbler as a scientist. He, he likes to make up one hypothesis. He constantly is having to correct himself because he's not thorough the first time around when he's making his uh, scientific conclusions, and this gets him into trouble. I mean, his painting hypothesis went through about four possibly five different renditions before he arrived at the final one. And this is because he's not careful or careful in making his conclusions. He's quick to jump and it's a fake. I proved it, you know, like, uh, and this gets him into trouble. Unlike the credible stirp scientists who take their time and look at all the different possibilities. And yeah, so originally Walter McCrone postulated that the shroud images were quote unquote finger painted using a dried pigment or powder. Now, McCrone later conceded that such a suggestion is scientifically impossible to be the case. This is going to be relevant for our next image forming mechanism. I'm going to quote the shroud skeptic Walter McCrone against other skeptics like Joe Nickel and that, that use powder rubbing. But yeah, he says this is in large part due to the microscopical differences in the appearance of the shroud's fibers versus a finger-painted image. You know, Sterp's proof that there are no such dry powders or pigments present on the shroud's images really only further collaborates Macrone's conclusion uh, that a finger painting can't be a suitable explanation for the shroud's image formation. So uh, that's not part of uh, the traditional painting hypothesis as laid out by Macrone in his final hypothesis, but be aware there are finger paintings and Macrone himself thought it could have been one of those and scientifically falsified as impossible. This is a quote from Macrone, um, that it's not a finger painting. Okay, so finally, now we're at uh, additional feature number three, the, the big, this is going to be a show in itself probably. So this is the fact that we know the shroud images are not composed of paint or pigments or any binding mediums. So this is going to be the last feature evaluating this hypothesis in our, our first step of Criterion B. We're going to save that for next time, part eight. Uh, as well as giving our cumulative case considerations and, and um, conclusion on the painting hypothesis in light of those five inference criteria for more probable explanation for the most probable explanation. Uh, so yeah, uh, see you guys next time and have a great day. Bye bye.